Hi, everyone. Welcome to 10 Points Parsha Podcast. This is Rabbi Yisrael Isaacs. Parsha Yisrael begins with Yisrael giving Moshe advice of how to set up his system of giving halachic decisions to the Jewish people. And he tells him he's going to get worn down and worn out. He's going to get burnt out from being overworked because of the burden of having to do so much. And of course, Yisro's answer to this problem is delegation. He should appoint judges to answer easier questions and whatever they don't know, they'll bring up to the higher judges and then the higher judges and eventually the questions that no one else can answer, those will be the only ones that Moshe has to deal with. But the easier questions, although the lay people can't necessarily, the typical Jew can't answer those questions, the lower judges will be able to answer the vast majority of them and Moshe will be freed up, time will be freed up dramatically. So how many judges are there? The Gemara calculates the number, and I think you could just really calculate it from looking at the Chumash, that there were 78,600 judges for 600,000 people. Now, if you divide 600,000 by 10, you get 60,000. That would be one judge for every 10 people. So this is more than, this is, this is 12 and a half thousand more judges than that. You've got one judge every nine people or, yeah, something like that. This raises the question, why were so many judges needed? When was the last time you went to court? Some people may litigate frequently, but most of us probably don't. So the question is, why was such a need for so many judges? We definitely want to take the burden off of Moshe, but this just seems like an excessive amount of judges. So there's an interesting story in Vayikra Rabbah, the Medrash on the third book of the Chumash. The story is about Alexander Mokdun, who's known as Alexander the Great. And he came to a country to talk to the leader. And while they were sitting there, two people came in to be judged by the leader or by the king. One of the litigants came and said, I purchased a charova from this defendant. The plaintiff says, I purchased a condemned building from this person here. So he came with with this other, with the defendant, and he says, and I found a treasure in the house. I said to him, here, take your treasure. I purchased a house from you, a ruined house. I never purchased a treasure from you. This is not mine. I'm not entitled to it. And the seller says, just as you're afraid of stealing something from me, I'm afraid of stealing something from you. When I sold you this ruined house, I sold it to you with everything in it. So the treasure's yours. The treasure was one of the things in the house. The treasure's not mine anymore. It's yours. If I take it from you right now, I'm stealing it from you because you bought it fair and square. What would you do if you were the king? This calls into the the thing with the rabbi from Scottsdale that he brought a desk and there was a lot of cash in there. So the king called in one, for one of them and he says, Islach bra, do you have a son? And he said, yes. He called the other one. He said, do you have a daughter? So he said, yes. They should get married and they both should share the treasure. The ministers of, of Alexander the Great were shocked. The king said to them, why are you so surprised? Did I not judge properly? They said, that's correct. You did not judge, judge properly. He said, well, what would you do? What would you do if this came to your court in Greece? They said to him, Merim Reisha Dedain, Veresha Dedain, we would execute both of the litigants. Visima Salka Malka, and we'll take the treasure. <laughs> now, if you think about this story, it's the opposite of what we would expect to happen in this type of situation. Because normally, when two people are fighting over this over a treasure, what are they? What's the fight usually? One of them says this is mine. The other one says it's mine. It's all mine. It's all. It's all mine. But a legal battle where this one says this is not mine. It's yours. 
the treasure is not mine, it's yours. And the other one says, no, it's not mine, it's yours. We never heard of such a thing. We would identify less with the court case than we would with the surprise of Alexander's ministers. Rabbi Rucham Levovitz, who was the, he was Mashgiach of Mir Yeshiva in Poland, and a great Balmusser, and he has a fantastic commentary on the Chumash. That's not really a commentary, it's more like Musser thoughts on the Chumash. He said that for these types of people that prioritize other people's money over their own, they need one judge for every 10 people. The more seriously you take handling other people's money and not doing anything wrong in terms of stealing or honesty, then the more doubts that are that will arise and concerns and questions than if you look at other people's money is not so important to protect. Yeah. The point here is 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 its attitude. It's how you relate to other people's money. It's a mindset of being careful, very careful in monetary matters. There's a famous story about Rabbi Sarl Salanter, the 19th century founder of the Musser movement. The, the story goes that a shochet, someone who ritually slaughters animals for consumption, he once told Rabbi Sosalanter that he's leaving that position because he was afraid of making a mistake when he's shechting the animal that would cause others to sin by eating non-kosher meat. A lot can go wrong, and you have to have a lot of awe of heaven to, to do everything reliably. So Rabbi Saros Lanter said, what are you going to do instead? He said, I'm going to open a store and, and sell things instead. So what Rabbi Saros Lanter said is that it's a mistake to think that having a store will lead to less sins than being a shochet. He said, if anything, the opposite is true. If you're a shochet and you make a mistake and someone, and the meat's not kosher and someone eats it, then there's only one commandment that's been transgressed. There's only one avera that's been done. That's eating nevela. That means eating an animal that's not properly shechted, which means kosher species that wasn't shechted properly. That's the only mitzvah at stake. But running a store involves a potential transgression of many mitzvos that govern monetary matters, and those are some of the most complex areas of halacha. So he'd be more, much more likely to sin in very serious ways than he would be if he was a shochet. And he included in his comments to the shochet that one of the first things they ask you, according to the Gemara and Shabbos, when you come to Shemaim and you come to heaven, is nasata v'nasata bemuna. Did you deal faithfully in business, honestly in business? There's another interesting story about Rabbi Sarah Salanter. These are quoted in. In the book The Legacy by Rabbi Beryl Wine and Rabbi Warren Goldstein that he once visited the Admor, the Ger Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, and he was mechabed Rabbi Saul Salanter. He honored Rabbi Saul Salanter and word got out around the town that Rabbi Saul Salanter came to visit and they went to Shul to Davin Mincha and a large crowd came to see this tzaddik who came to town. They came to see Rabbi Saul Salanter. So what happened was he davened so quickly, he davened the Shmona down in the Amidah so quickly that the Hasidim were disappointed. They said, this is a great Torah scholar, a great Sadik. His davening is so unimpressive. He just quickly davened the whole Shemunet. Like, what happened? Where's all the Hislavas? Where's all the enthusiasm? Where's the fire? It seemed to be like all business. Boom, he was finished in a few minutes. When he noticed their reaction, he explained that when he saw so many people who were working for a living, tailors, shoemakers, and other workmen who took off time from work to come daven with him and to watch him daven, he felt like it would be wrong for him to daven for too long because the longer he interrupted their workday, the more money they would lose. So he was afraid even of indirectly causing a loss 
of money to anyone. Forget about directly causing loss. Even if he was indirectly causing a loss, he was concerned about that. Another story about him is a funny one. One era of Yom Kippur, everyone's going to shul. What's Rabbi Yisrael Salanter doing? Not going to comfort a crying baby. That's another story. This one is he's chasing after a cat. Why would he chase after a cat on Erev Yom Kippur? Whenever about everybody's either eating or going to shul. Why is he chasing a cat? He was chasing it into his own house because he had borrowed some svarim. He'd borrowed some books from someone. And he was concerned that during Yom Kippur, where everybody's in shul for pretty much the whole day, mice would come in and they might damage the books because they're made out of leather and that was one thing that mice would chew on. Since he had to protect the property of others, he needed this cat in his house and that's what he had, That's what he was busy with on Erev Yom Kippur. We know that Yisro had many names. How many names did he have? Rashi says in the beginning of the Parsha that Yisro had seven names. Reuel, Yeser, Yisro, Chovav, Chever, Kini and Putiel. Why is he called Yeser? Literally means extra because he added an extra parsha in the Torah. It doesn't mean Parsha's Yisro. It means this whole section that talks about his Eitzah. He's called Yeser because of his advice to the Jewish people, to Moshe, to get all these helpers. So he added some part of the Torah that wouldn't have been there without him. What is the part that he added? Rashi says, You should look for people who are qualified to be judges to help you out. The question is, we understand what Rashi's saying, that there's an extra parsha in the Torah that describes what Yisro did for the Jewish people. If Rashi's going to tell us what that second that added section is, he should tell us how it starts. He should say, by Yishma Yisro. The beginning of the Parsha is the beginning of that section. Why is Rashi saying that the part that Yisro added is which is a part in the middle of this section that's added, which is the beginning of Yisro's Eitzah of how to solve the problem by appointing all these helpers, these other judges. Why does Rashi identify the added section with a middle part of the section rather than the beginning of the section? So Ramir Shapiro, the Roshiva of Yeshivas Chachme Lublin and the founder, famous founder of Dafyomi, who lived in the early 20th century, he says that the part of the section of Yisro that's before him giving the advice, meaning the part that's identifying the problem, that's not worth as much as the subsequent section, which is his advice of how to deal with the problem. Meaning it's easy to point out problems. It's hard to point out solutions. So Yisro is credited, when Rashi says Yisro is credited with adding something to the Torah that wasn't there before. Rashi says, what is he credited with? The part that's his idea of how to fix the problem, how to solve the problem, that's a valuable part. Pointing out problems, criticizing, that's easier. So that we wouldn't necessarily give Yisro extra credit for just pointing out problems and, and criticizing. So the message is obvious that it's good to identify problems. Sometimes it's there's chachman identifying a problem. There's wisdom in that. But the important thing to focus on is being constructive, being proactive to solve problems rather than dwelling on and just pointing out the problems. And that is something we learned from Yisra. Thank you so much for listening. Part two will follow. Moshe does what Yisra says. He sets up all these judges and the system seemed to be working. And then it says that Moses sent off his father-in-law and he went to his land. Did he come back or not? That's something maybe we'll discuss another time. We arrive at the Parsha of, of the Jewish people arriving at Midbar Sinai. The 
desert, the wilderness of Sinai, where they would receive the Torah. And at this point, God tells Moshe a message to deliver to the Jewish people, which is an introduction to them saying that they're going to receive the Torah and how important it is and how they're a nation of priests. And this would prepare them, this would get them in the mindset for receiving the Torah. So at this point, the very famous line of how God says to deliver the message is found. It says, Ko somar Yaakov So shall you say to the house of Jacob and relate to the children of Israel. So there's two things going on here. He is going to be saying something, saying this message to the house of Jacob, and he's going to be relating to the Bnei Israel. There's two things. There's somar, there's saying to Beis Yaakov, to the house of Jacob. So it's one type of speech to one group of people. And then there's there's relating, which is another type of communicating, to a different group, the Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. So what are these two ways of communicating that are described differently? And what are these two communities that are being addressed? What are these two groups of people being addressed? Rashi famously says that Beis Yaakov is Elu Hanashim. Tomar lahem raka. The word Tomar, say, means to speak softly. The Beis Yaakov refers to the women. That's why Jewish girls' schools are often named Beis Yaakov, because of this Pasuk, because it's a reference to the women. And they should be given this message in a softer way. And then it says, V'sagei Israel, you should relate it to the children of Israel. Rashi says, Onshin v'diktukin paresh l'zachar. Tell them the punishments and all the, the details, which is the harsher part of the Torah. You tell the men, the harsher part. So you're telling them in a blunter language, and that's referring to the men. Rashi's saying there's two different ways he's going to talk to the women, one way to the women, one way to the men. One question that's addressed by many commentaries, even Rishonim, so this has been discussed for many, many centuries, is if Beis Yaakov is a reference to the women, why are the women addressed first? The Ramban, Nachmanides, who we've discussed before, the medieval Kabbalist and Bible commentator and Halachist and Talmudist, so he says something very interesting. He says, Why was Moshe commanded to speak to the women first? They send their children to school. They pay attention to their children that they should study Torah. They, they have mercy on them. They take pity on them. They take care of them when they come home from school. And they draw their hearts with good words, pleasant words, that their desire should be in Torah, that they encourage their children to love Torah. And they guard them, and they guard them so they won't waste their time and not study Torah. And they teach them fear of sin when they're young. And he says, And according to this, women are the rabbis of the children for Torah and awe of heaven. Ramban is saying that women were mentioned first because of their crucial role in the education of children. So when Moshe is going to be setting the Jewish people up for receiving a Torah, the big revelation, he puts the women first because they're going to be the crucial factor in transmitting Torah to the next generation. This fits very beautifully. It dovetails with Rev Soloveitchik's eulogy for the Talna Rebetzin. Was his in-law? 
I'm not exactly sure how it was related. Anyway, this was published in Tradition in spring of 1978 so this is his famous expression of how important his mother was to him in his jewish experience when he was young he says people are mistaken in thinking that there is only one misora and one misora community it is not true we have two masorot two traditions two communities two shalshelot hakabola two chains of tradition the misora community of the fathers and that of the mothers and he quotes this verse that we're learning right now thus shalt thou say to the house of jacob which means the women and tell the children of israel which means the men and he quotes the verse in proverbs in the beginning of proverbs mishle shema bini musra vicha v'altitosh torasimecha hear my son the instruction of thy father and forsake not the teaching of thy mother What's the difference between these two traditions? What's the distinction between Musra Vicha and Torah Imecha? One learns much from father, how to read a text, the Bible or the Talmud, how to comprehend, how to analyze, how to conceptualize, how to classify, how to infer, how to apply, etc. One also learns from father what to do and what not to do, what is morally right and what is morally wrong. Father teaches the son the discipline of thought as well as the discipline of action. Father's tradition is an intellectual, moral one. That is why it is identified with Musr, which is the biblical term for discipline. What is Torah imecha? What kind of a Torah does the mother pass on? I admit that I am not able to define precisely the Masoretic role of the Jewish mother. Only by circumscription, I hope to be able to explain it. I mean, he's going to sketch around the topic to try to describe it. He can't put his finger on it exactly. Permit me to draw upon my own experiences. I used to have long conversations with my mother. In fact, it was a monologue rather than a dialogue. She talked and I happened to overhear. What did she talk about? I must use an halachic term to answer this question. She talked about me in Yana de Yoma. I used to watch her arranging the house in honor of a holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the Sidra every Friday night meaning the Parsha, and I still remember the nostalgic tune. I learned from her very much. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in formal compliance with the law, but also in a living experience. She taught me that there is a flavor, a scent, and warmth to mitzvos. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure of his hand resting upon my frail shoulders. Without her teachings, which quite often were transmitted to me in silence, I would have grown up a soulless being, dry and insensitive. The laws of Shabbat, for instance, were passed on to me by my father. They're a part of Musravicha. The Shabbat as a living entity, as a queen, was revealed to me by my mother. It is a part of Torah Yimecha. The fathers knew much about the Shabbat. The mothers lived the Shabbat, experienced her presence, and perceived her beauty and splendor. The fathers taught generations how to observe the Shabbat. Mothers taught generations how to greet the Shabbat and how to enjoy her 24-hour presence. That is perhaps why, that is what Rosalvechik is saying, why the women are singled out first in the introduction to the giving of the Torah, because it's an acknowledgement of the centrality of their role in transmitting the Torah, whereas we might have thought that that was for the father primarily. It's saying, no, the mother has a equal, if not more important, role in many ways. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.